Chapter 12 of The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Vox. The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 12 An Interesting Interview. For the rest of the afternoon, Jim had a wretched time. To be beaten after such a race by a foot, and to be beaten by a foot when victory would have cut the Gordian knot of his difficulties once and for all, was enough to embitter anybody's existence. He found it hard to accept the well-meant condolences of casual acquaintances, and still harder to do the right thing and congratulate Drake on his victory, a refinement of self-torture which is by custom expected of the vanquished in every branch of work or sport. But he managed it somehow, and he also managed to appear reasonably gratified when he went up to take his prize for the half-mile. Tony and the others, who knew what his defeat meant to him, kept out of his way, for which he was grateful. After lock-up, however, it was a different matter, but by that time he was more ready for society. Even now there might be some way out of the difficulty. He asked Tony's advice on the subject. Tony was perplexed. The situation was beyond his grip. I don't see what you can do, Jim, he said, unless the rugby chap will be satisfied with a pound on account. It's a beastly business. Do you think your pater will give you your money all the same as it was such a close finish? Jim thought not. In fact, he was certain that he would not. And Tony relapsed into silence as he tried to bring another idea to the surface. He had not succeeded when Charteris came in. Jim, he said, you have my sympathy. It was an awfully near thing. But I've got something more solid than sympathy. I will take a seat. Don't rag, Charteris, said Tony. It's much too serious. Who's ragging you, Rotter? I say I have something more solid than sympathy and instead of giving me an opening, as a decent individual would, by saying, What? You accuse me of ragging. James, my son, if you will postpone your suicide for two minutes, I will a tale unfold. I have an idea. Well, that's more like it. Now you are talking. We will start at the beginning. First, you want a pound. So do I. Secondly, you want it before next Tuesday. Thirdly, you haven't it on you. How, therefore, are you to get it? As the song hath it, you don't know, they don't know, but, now we come to the point, I do know. Yes, said Jim and Tony together. It's a luminous idea. Why shouldn't we publish a special number of the glowworm before the end of term? Jim was silent at the brilliance of the scheme. Then doubts began to harass him. Is there time? Time? Yards of it. This is Saturday. We start tonight, and keep at it all night if necessary. We ought to manage it easily before tomorrow morning. On Sunday, we jellygraph it. It'll have to be a jellygraphed number this time. On Monday and Tuesday, we sell it, and there you are. How are you going to sell it? In the ordinary way at the shop? Yes, I've arranged all that. All we've got to do is write the thing. As the penalty for your sins, you shall take on most of it. I'll do the editorial. Welch is pegging away at the sports account now, and I waylaid Jackson just before lock-up and induced him by awful threats to knock off some verses. So we're practically published already. It's grand, said Jim, and it's awfully decent of you chaps to fag yourselves like this for me. I'll start on something now. But can you raise a sovereign on one number? asked Tony. Either that, or I've arranged with the shop to give us a quid down and take all profits on this and the next number. They're as keen as anything on the taking all profits idea but I've kept that back to be used only in case of necessity. 
but the point is that Jim gets his sovereign in any case. I must be off to my editorial. So long. And he went. Grand man, Charteris, said Tony, as he leant back in his chair in search of a subject. You'd better weigh in with an account of the burglary. It's a pity you can't give the realistic description you gave us. It would sell like anything. Wouldn't do to risk it. At that moment the door swung violently open, with Merivale holding on to the handle and following it in its course. Merivale very rarely knocked at a study door, a peculiarity of his which went far towards shattering the nervous systems of the various inmates, who never knew when it was safe to stop work and read fiction. "'Ah, Thompson,' he said, "'I was looking for you. The headmaster wants to see you over at his house if you are feeling well enough after your exertions. Very close thing, that mile. I don't know when I have seen a better run race on the college grounds. I suppose you are feeling pretty tired, eh?' I am rather, sir, but I had better see the head. Will he be in his study, sir? Yes, I think so. Jim took his cap and went off while Merivale settled down to spend the evening in Tony's study, as he often did when the term's work was over and it was no longer necessary to keep up the pretense of preparation. Parker, the head's butler, conducted Jim into the presence. Sit down, Thompson, said the head. Jim took a seat, and he had just time to notice that his namesake, Mr. Thompson was also present, and that, in spite of the fact that his tie had crept up to the top of his collar, he was looking quite unnecessarily satisfied with himself when he became aware that the head was speaking to him. I hope you're not feeling any bad effects from your race, Thompson. Jim was half inclined to say that his effects were nil, but he felt that the quip was too subtle and would be lost on his present audience, so he merely said that he was not. There was a rather awkward silence for a minute, then the head coughed and said, Thompson? Yes, sir. I think it would be fairest to you to come to the point at once and to tell you the reason why I wish to see you. Jim ran over the sins which shot up in his mind like rockets as he heard these ominous words, and he knew that this must be the matter of the pavilion. He was, therefore, in a measure prepared for the head's next words. Thompson? Yes, sir. A very serious charge has been brought against you. You are accused of nothing less than this unfortunate burglary of the prizes for the sports. Yes, sir. Is my accuser Mr. Thompson? The headmaster hesitated for a moment, and Mr. Thompson spoke. That is so. Yes, said the head. The accusation is brought by Mr. Thompson. Yes, sir, said Jim again, and this time the observation was intended to convey the meaning. My dear good sir, when you've known him as long as I have, you won't mind what Mr. Thompson says or does. It's a kind of way he's got, and if he's not under treatment for it, he ought to be. I should like to hear from your own lips that the charge is groundless. Anything to oblige, thought Jim, then aloud. Yes, sir. You say it is groundless? This from Mr. Thompson. Yes, sir. I must warn you, Thompson, that the evidence against you is very strong indeed, said the head. Without suggesting that you are guilty of this thing, I think I ought to tell you that if you have any confession to make, it will be greatly, very greatly, to your own advantage, to make it at once. And give myself away, free, gratis, and for nothing, thought Jim? Not for me, thank you. Might I hear Mr. Thompson's evidence, sir? he asked. Certainly, Thompson. He effected a movement in Mr. Thompson's direction, midway between a bow and a nod. Mr. Thompson coughed. Jim coughed, too, in the same key. This put Mr. Thompson out, and he had to cough again. In the first place, he began, it has been conclusively proved that the burglary was the work of an unskillful hand. That certainly seems to point to me as the author, said Jim flippantly. Silence, Thompson, said the head, and counsel for the prosecution resumed. In the second place, it has been proved that you were at the time of the burglary in great need of money. This woke Jim up. It destroyed that feeling of coolness with which he had started the interview. 
Awful thoughts flashed across his mind. Had he been seen at the time of his burglarous entry? At any rate, how did Mr. Thompson come to know of his pecuniary troubles? Did you say that it had been proved, sir? Yes. How, sir? He felt the question was a mistake as he was uttering it. Your really injured innocent would have called all the elements to witness that he was a millionaire. But it was too late to try that now. And besides, he really did want to know how Mr. Thompson had got to hear of this skeleton in his cupboard. The headmaster interrupted hurriedly. It is a very unfortunate affair altogether, and this is quite the most unfortunate part. A letter came to the college addressed to J. Thompson, and Mr. Thompson opened and read it inadvertently. Quite inadvertently. Yes, sir, said Jim in a tone which replied, I am no George Washington myself, but when you say he read it inadvertently, well, this letter was signed, Allen, my brother, sir. Exactly, and it asked for two pounds, evidently in payment of a debt, and the tone of the letter certainly seemed to show that you were not then in possession of that money. Could I have the letter, sir? Then, with respectful venom to Mr. Thompson, if you have finished with it, the letter was handed over and pocketed, and Jim braced his moral pecker up for the next round of the contest. I take it then, Thompson, resumed the head, that you owe your brother this money? Yes, sir. Two pounds is a great deal of money for one boy to lend another. It was not lent, sir. It was a bet. A bet, in a nasty tone from the head. A bet, in a sepulchral echo from Mr. Thompson. There was a long pause. At any other time, said the head. I should feel it only my duty to take serious notice of this, but beside this other matter with which you are charged, it becomes trivial. I can only repeat that the circumstances are exceedingly suspicious, and I think it would be in your interest to tell us all you know without further delay. You take it for granted I am guilty, sir, began Jim hotly. I say that the circumstances seem to point to it. In the first place, you are in need of money. You admit that? Yes, sir. In the second place, said the head slowly, in the second place, I am told that you were nowhere to be found in the house at half-past eight on the night of the burglary, when you ought certainly to have been in your study at your work. Bombshell number two, and a worse one than the first. For the moment, Jim's head swam. If he had been asked just then so many words where he had been at that time, it is likely that he would have admitted everything. By some miracle, the head did not press his point. You may go now, Thompson. I should like to see you after morning school on Monday. Good night. Good night, sir, said Jim, and went without another word. Coming so soon after the exertion and strain of the mile, this shock made him feel sick and dizzy. When he had gone, the head turned to Mr. Thompson with a worried look on his face. I feel as certain as I do of anything, he said thoughtfully, that that boy is telling the truth. If he had been guilty, he would not have behaved like that. I feel sure of it. Mr. Thompson looked equally thoughtful. The circumstances are certainly very suspicious, he said, echoing the head's own words. I wish I could think he was innocent, but I am bound to say I do not. I regard the evidence as conclusive. Circumstantial evidence is proverbially uncertain, Mr. Thompson. That is principally the reason why I was so bent on making him confess, if he had anything to confess. I can't expel a boy and ruin his whole career on mere suspicion. The matter must be proved doubly proved, and even then I should feel uneasy until he owned himself guilty. It is a most unpleasant affair, a terrible affair. Most, agreed Mr. Thompson. And exactly the same thing was occurring at that moment to Jim, as he sat on his bed in his dormitory, and pondered hopelessly on this new complication that had presented itself so unexpectedly. He was getting very near to the end of his tether. Was J. Thompson of Maryvelle's? 
It seemed to him, indeed, that he had reached it already. Possibly, if he had had a clearer conscience and a larger experience, he might have recognized that the evidence which Mr. Thompson had described as conclusive was in reality not strong enough to hang a cat on. Unfortunately, he did not enjoy those advantages. End of chapter 12. Recording by Noel Fox.